Welcome to this presentation from the Downey Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are located in the greater Los Angeles area at 9820 Lakewood Boulevard in Downey, California. We would love to have you worship with us any Saturday you are in our area. All right, good morning, everybody. I was so excited to get up to preach, and then I realized, oh, we got a song. <laughs> Habits die hard. And yet again, I have to give credit to Doug. Why am I up here when he already preached a great sermon? It's all right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another day of life, Lord. Another beautiful Sabbath that you have blessed us with. As we now dive into the word, be with us as we talk about your great love. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. All right. So we are uh, starting week two of our series called I Doubt It. For those of you who are uh, joining us for the first time today, uh, several months back, we were you know, trying to figure out, well, what are we going to talk about this, this year in 2022, talking about all the preaching and everything. And so came up with several questions. Started out with questions, and then it kind of turned into this idea of doubt, hence the term, I doubt it. Questions that maybe we as Christians or people have for the church, or especially for those of us who've been in the church long enough, there's some things that we, we ask, for instance, when is God returning? Amen? So over the next, uh, well, now five weeks, we'll be tackling these issues and I hope and pray that if you've not had a chance to join a, a small group yet, for sure, let us know and we'll get you connected. So this week, this week, we are talking about God's love and grace. Amen. Cannot talk about this enough. In Ernest Hemingway, he wrote, um, I can't remember if it was a book or what, but it was called, a piece called The Capital of the World. And uh, the, the story revolves around a father and a son named Paco. Maybe some of you have probably heard this illustration, but it's a good illustration. And the story is set in Spain. Paco was an, a very, very common name in Spain at the time, kind of like John. And he had this great desire to be a matador. Now, his father, being more sensible, is thinking... Not a great career path, especially of a, a matador, right? And Paco, what he really wanted to do was he wanted to escape his father's control. So what does Paco do? He runs to the capital. He runs to Madrid. And yet his father realizes that his son has left him. He's abandoned him. He actually said, I'm going to leave. And he left. So his father follows him to Madrid. And in the local newspaper, he, he asks, hey, I want to run an ad. And it says, dear Paco, meet me in the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. What time? Noon. And then it says, all is forgiven. I love you. All is forgiven. I love you. 
Hemingway continues on. The next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, there were over 800 Pacos all seeking forgiveness. Our world is full of many Pacos seeking and desiring forgiveness, love, reconciliation. And thanks be to God, we have a Father who loves us and gives us grace. Amen. Today I want to go to a story that it's a rather challenging story. Now, we're going to be focusing on Psalm 51, but in order to understand Psalm 51, we have to understand what is the context. Okay, so I'm just going to read the first part. I'm, going to even, I'm not even going to read verse, verse 1. But at the top of Psalm 51, it says, From the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Hmm. Many of you have probably heard of this story. In fact, they made a movie about it, right? Way back in the day. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, I'm just going to, I'm going to highlight this story. Uh, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army that destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, and David remained in Jerusalem. So think about this. He's a king. He sends his men out to do his bidding. He's staying back at home. He's cruising. He's taking it easy. And as he's, he's at home later in the evening, he gets up uh, from his bedding, walks around the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw what? He saw Bathsheba. But what was Bathsheba doing? He was taking a bath. Why you do that on top of a roof? Huh, I don't know. And how does Samuel describe her? She was what? She was beautiful. He was a man. He saw a beautiful woman. He was the king. And so David inquires who that is. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. And note this, the wife, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So what does David do? Does David go back to his room? No. He sends a messenger and tells the messenger to bring back Bathsheba. So she came to him and he slept with her. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Awkward. Now, where's Uriah in all of this? Uriah was a soldier in whose army? David's army. And so while Uriah is putting his life on the line for David, he's getting, he's, um, he doesn't know that there's shenanigans going on back home. He's being faithful to David, a faithful, faithful warrior. So all of a sudden, David has this predicament. There's a woman who's pregnant, not his wife. So David sends a word to Joab and says, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him 
to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how the war was going on. He's trying to make small talk, trying to figure out how is he going to deal with Uriah. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So David left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So what's David trying to do? He's trying to send Uriah back home, hoping something will happen and all will be okay. Right? There's just one little problem. Uriah doesn't go home. In fact, it says uh, David was told uh, Uriah uh, did not go home, and he asked, "Why haven't you come? Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home?" And Uriah, he is uh, he is a strong, committed leader to his troops, and he says, "Hey, man, I can't go home. All of my guys, they're not able to go home. So why should I have the privilege? Why should I be special?" See the parallels between him and David and talking about leadership and leading people? Very different opposite ends of the spectrum. Uriah serves. David takes. Mm. So David said, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. And Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and at David's invitation what does he try to do? He tries to get him drunk. He tries to eat, tries to make sure that he goes home. And still, Uriah was faithful to his troops. So plan A doesn't work. Plan B doesn't work. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and it says he sent it with Uriah. I just Wow, I just realized that. He sent the letter with Uriah. And what did the letter include? It basically said, put Uriah in front of the fighting where it is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So the third plan is to put Uriah in the thick of the fighting, just hoping and praying Uriah will die. Hmm. How do you feel about David right now? Your perspective is starting to change a little bit, isn't it? Because what do we know David as? He's a king. He's a hero. He's a man after who? God's own heart. And yet, what's he trying to do? He's trying to cover up his shenanigans. And he's basically trying to get Uriah killed. Not a very pretty picture, isn't it? So, Joab, uh, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against jo Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah hits the Hittite. He dies. So Joab sends word to David. David feels like he's in the clear. He's okay. Joab gave an account, and yet in verse 26, when Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him, and after that time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife. She bore him a son, but the thing that David had done, how did the Lord feel about this? God was not happy. 
And so what happens next? God sends Nathan. Who's Nathan? He's a prophet. And he shares this story of, uh, he shares this story of, there were two neighbors, uh, a rich man. He had many sheep. He had many cattle. Okay? He had many sheep. He had many cattle. But he had, a, he had a neighbor who was a poor man. He had only one little ewe lamb, a baby lamb. And he raised it. Actually, the lamb lived in the home. It was like a little puppy. Followed the, 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 the poor man, the owner, everywhere it went. It was like a part of the family. But one day, the rich man realizes he has company over. But he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to use one of his cows or sheep for the main meal, and he sees that there's this little lamb next door, and so he gets the little lamb and he serves it to his guests. Obviously, the poor man is broken. He's heartbroken. His little family member <coughs> was taken from him. wasn't even asked. Just taken. How would you feel about that if your neighbor did that to your little lamb? Hmm, not good, right? I, 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 rem I remember reading this story a couple of years ago, and I had such a reaction to that. It's like, dude, why are you taking this little lamb when you have plenty of sheep and cattle, as Scripture says? Now, what is David's response as he hears this story? How dare this man do this? He must be punished. You know, he's, he's speaking aloud, not getting the irony of what has just happened in his life. And, and uh, he calls for, where is this man? He must, what, what does it say? Uh, he, he basically, Nathan calls him out, David, you are that rich man. And all of a sudden, David feels the full weight of everything that he had done. He thought he'd gotten away with everything and realizes, no, I hadn't. He got caught. And so over time, David realizes he knows what he's done. And he writes a psalm. He writes a psalm, Psalm 51. Let's go to Psalm 51. And his res this is his response. Psalm 51. Well, there? I hear a few pages turning. Okay. All right, Psalm 51. Verse 1, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet of Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery at Bathsheba. Verse 1, it says, have mercy on me, God, according to what kind of love? Unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is right, what is done, sorry, what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at what? 
birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash away, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my what? Iniquity. Create in me what, Lord? A pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast what? Spirit within me. Do not Cast me from your presence or take your what? Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the what? The joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my lip, my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not displease. May it, pros may it please you to prosper Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole, and then bulls will be born on your altar. Psalm 51 is a letter. It's one of the most famous psalms that we can read and when it talks about forgiveness. So understanding the backstory of everything that David had done. Now, whether it was consensual or not, David used his authority, his ability to get what he wanted with Bathsheba. Can we agree on that? Right? But not only that, he then tries to cover up his mistake. Not once, not twice, but three times. Ultimately, leading to the death of Uriah. Now, he himself, he may not have plunged his sword or shot him with an arrow, but he sentenced Uriah to death. And what's sad is Uriah was one of the most faithful warriors David had. And he took advantage of that. And we see here now that in this psalm, is David truly repentant in Psalm 51? Because, and I think he is, because he ultimately owns his actions. He first saw, starts off with, have mercy on, oh me, on me, oh God, according to your unfailing love. And I love that word, unfailing. How else would you describe unfailing? Boundless. There's no line. Truly, we cannot understand great, God's great love for us. But God loves us immeasurably more than we could ever understand. And it says, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God's love. God's love knows no boundaries. God's love is unfailing. You know, one, one of the things that we sometimes challenge or we're challenged by, though, is Let's say critics. This may not be true for everybody, but 
Who do you think is your harshest critic? Yourselves. That space that resides in between your ears, your hearts, and your minds. We can do a number on ourselves, amen? I am certainly not immune to that. I'm my harshest critic, especially when I go back and I watch my sermons because <laughs> I want to learn. <laughs> oh, I need to stop repeating that word. I, I take all of these lessons and yet it's like, oh, I still sometimes keep making them. And we sometimes can work ourselves in our minds to think that, no, God doesn't love us. I'm a horrible person. And we criticize ourselves. We feel like we're not valuable enough. We're not worthy enough. That's why I think one of the great barriers that keeps us away from understanding and knowing and ultimately running to God because we don't feel we are good enough. In fact, I had this conversation last night with somebody where they were struggling because they felt like they, they weren't right with God. They were either angry or upset and Yet, that's when you need to go to God. Amen? We sometimes, uh, there, there's this illustration that uh, there was an unwell person who didn't want to go to the gym because everybody was great, but yet the unwell person needed to go to the gym in order to work out to be able to grow and get well. And it's much like the per you illustrate this at the church. Sometimes we think that we have to be perfect before we can come to church, and yet the reason and the existence of the church is for those who are unwell to be able to come here and receive healing. And so God's love is unfailing. It is, it is, there is no boundaries. C.S. Lewis once said, denial is a shock absorber for the soul. It protects us until we are equipped to cope with reality. And so sometimes we are in denial of the truth. But when we, when we make mistakes, we have to own them. True healing, repentance, and change will not happen until you acknowledge your mistakes. There's a story that I recently uh, listened to of a, a soldier. I think his name was Angel. Growing up, his parents, they, he had, I, I don't remember, I think maybe four, uh, four brothers and sisters, and growing up, his parents uh, were very young when they started their family. Uh, I think his mother was actually like 17 and his father was, I don't know, maybe four or five years older. And when you're 17 and 21, do you know a lot about life? You don't, right? Those of you who are older, like, oh, you don't really know much. Add in a couple of kids to that picture. What happens? Stress accumulates, and, and you don't, they don't give you a manual on how to raise kids, amen? You can see other examples, but it's, it's a learning process. And mistakes were made growing up. An angel, uh, you know, he came to a point, I think he's, uh, he's probably in his 30s now, where he was, he was trying to talk to his mom. His mother had joined the church, and, and she was, according to her, she was saved, and that's all she needed. But yet the damage that she'd put on her kids, the abuse and some of it physical, some of it emotional, had taken a toll. And she was good. She was good with God, but she wasn't good with her kids. And her kids could see, you know, her life, she was great. But all of the resentment and anger that was on 
her kids' hearts toward her wasn't fixed. And it wasn't until she realized, oh, no, I did make mistakes. And it wasn't until she sought forgiveness. And the forgiveness on the kids' part didn't necessarily come easy, right? Because even when we make mistakes, there are sometimes consequences to our prior actions. Just because we may be loved and we may be forgiven by God, there's still sometimes work to be done with our family, our friends, people that we may have been wrong. Or, you know, we, we may have done something in the past that could have consequences for us. So even though we love God and we know we are forgiven, we have to be mindful of if we've done something in the past, we need to seek forgiveness. Amen? And that's hard to do. It's hard to do. Especially when you feel like you are in the right. I know I was right. But we have to, we have to follow David's example of humility. When I, when I look at David's, um, David's uh, psalm, he, he, uh, he, where is it? Essentially, he's seeking, let me hear joy and gladness. Um, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God's love is so great and that God's love should produce joy in our hearts. Joy is uh, joy is different from happiness because happiness can be external. We can, we can be happy about something that's happening to us, but joy is that quiet confidence that we can have knowing that we are loved, that we are forgiven, and that we can go forth with God and accomplish what God desires for us. Amen? So God's love should bring joy to us because salvation comes from God. May you have joy. And what does David desire to offer God in verse 17? It says, my sacrifice, O God, is a, what kind of spirit? A broken spirit. How many of you feel that you're all put together? Everything's great. Okay, nobody raised their hands, which is an acknowledgement of we know that we are not perfect, right? But it is only by God's love and grace that all things are possible. And in our brokenness, may we offer to God a broken and contrite honest heart. May we go to God for who we are, not for trying to magically or trying to say, well, this is who I am, but not really, because God knows who we really are. Let's not try to lie to ourselves. God loves us for where we are, no matter what. But may you, like David, may you go to God when you make a mistake, to say, God, I am truly sorry. Forgive me. When we talk about God's love, there, there are uh, a no- number of verses that we can go to. Um, one, of the, one of the beautiful promises that I uh, found in is Micah 7.19. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. How deep is the sea at its lowest point? I think it's at the Mariana Trench. It's like 29, almost 30,000 feet. 
It's pretty deep. Amen? And God, essentially, it's as if he will hurl all our iniquities, our mistakes, our sins into the depths of seas. Another passage says, uh, I will remember them. I will not remember them anymore. And finally, when it comes to forgiveness, may, God, may we also seek forgiveness, but we also, in Colossians 3.13, may we bear with each other, forgive one another as if anyone has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Because we need God's great forgiveness, and God desires to give us forgiveness, but if we truly want to be a people of God, not only should we ask and receive forgiveness, but we should also seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness amongst our fellow brothers and sisters. Amen? Mm. That one's not as easy. But when we have those difficult conversations, when we seek forgiveness, and we grant forgiveness, especially when we grant forgiveness, the things that we've been maybe harboring against somebody, that weight is lifted. How many of you have sought forgiveness or granted forgiveness, and all of a sudden it felt like this thousand-pound gorilla was off your back? Amen? And that's when true healing can take place, when we can really let go. So, my friends, <clears throat> where in your life am I in denial of or need to grow? And what changes do I need to make? Here's the challenging part. May you pray and seek forgiveness with God, but also one person in your life. And I would also say maybe there's one person in your life who maybe is no longer alive, but you still harbor Harbor this anger towards them. Maybe it's time to let it go. Maybe you're not able to be able to call them or talk to them. But mentally, or maybe write a letter to them and say, I forgive you. And from there, healing can take place. Never doubt, my friends, the love that Jesus has for us. Because God's love is bigger and greater than anything that we could ever imagine. God loved us because he actually came and lived amongst God's people. That in itself is a great act of love and devotion. So may you be well. Go with faith. Live doubtlessly. And may God bless you. Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for us. Be with us in all that we do. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace, everybody.